Rosh Hashanah, which is a, uh, a somewhat somber time. It used to be an awesome time with real dread. People became very serious in the month before because um, the belief or the idea was that there's a day of judgment coming and you know if there's a day of judgment, you're in trouble, without a doubt. So you better get your act together. That idea has been somewhat softened by Hasidus, by the Baal Shem Tov, who came and said, if there's a day of judgment, you probably are going to be found deserving. Why do you assume you're going to be found guilty? Now, of course, when you know, none of us are perfect, and, and there are things we do that we shouldn't have, but does that automatically imply punishment? That doesn't sound like judgment at all. Judgment means somebody did something wrong, now we have to have good judgment. Was it intentional? Was it uh, spiteful? Was it out of weakness? Was it, I mean, that's judgment. If you just have uh, this sin carries this punishment, this mitzvah carries this reward, it's too mechanical. There's no judgment. So the day of judgment doesn't have to be a frightening day, just a sobering one. So the Baal Shem Tov basically turned things around and revolutionized Jewish thinking. Really revolutionary. It wasn't just a, a change. It was a revolution. It turned everything upside down. And that is a, a testament to the infinite meaning that the Torah, the words of the Torah, carry. Because it's been 3,300 years that the greatest minds have been plumbing the depth, the depth of the meaning. And you would think by now it should have exhausted all meaning. I mean, how much can you squeeze out of one text? <clears throat> and yet the Baal Shem Tev came along and said, you haven't even scratched the surface. That's the Torah. Whenever we need, whenever we're in trouble, whenever we're confused, we look into the Torah again, and suddenly it's a whole new Torah. And it's talking to us, and it's relevant to us. In fact, we can't even understand, we can't even imagine, how was it relevant to Abraham? He lived in a tent. <laughs> Did he put a mezuzah on his tent flap? The Torah seems so much more relevant to us than to him. Moses, where did he put a mezuzah? Oh, on the clouds of glory? So the, the Torah just keeps getting more and more relevant. And this is our, our topic tonight. What is this thing called religion? What do we make of it? What do we do with it? And what is it doing to us? So let's examine this a little bit. What exactly is religion? Now, I don't know what the dictionary says, but religion is a familiar and, and present way of life, so we know what it is. 
in reality, on the ground. Of course, it all sounds great, you know, like the Russian constitution. Sounds very, the, the communist constitution. Sounds really good on paper. But what is it really? So at the beginning, and, and it's reasonable that things would start this way, religion simply was obedience to a divine code. Right? That's God gave us a bunch of instructions, obedience to those instructions, that's religion. What is the purpose of the whole thing? Well, you know you're mortal. What's going to happen after? Aren't you worried? Well, we weren't worried, but they, they got us worried. And then we suddenly were concerned what's going to be after life. And so religion came along and said, we can guarantee you a good seat in heaven. But it didn't take very long, and we suddenly had many religions, each one claiming that they have the tickets. And that if you want to get to heaven, you've got to follow their rules. My, my point is, it was obedience. Obedience. You have to obey. Obedience will get you to heaven. You know, for Jews, that was very difficult. We have a hard time obeying. We're just not cut out for it. God took us out of Egypt with miracles, crossed, split the sea for us to cross, took us to Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning and all sorts of special effects. And then he said, don't make graven images. And 40 days later, we thought, eh, you know, how bad could it be? We're just not cut out for obedience. We needed to find out. Obedience, uh, in a very realistic way, makes understanding unnecessary. You don't need to know, you don't need to understand, just do what you're told and you'll be fine. Not surprisingly, there were many people who uh, were not inspired by that. Then it got worse. It's not just that you don't need to understand and that you don't need to ask questions. You're not allowed to. If you're asking questions, that's rebellious. You're not being obedient. And so the first stage was religion demanded obedience. The second stage is it, it demanded ignorance. Demanded ignorance. People who had previously been brilliant, intelligent, uh, wild, widely knowledgeable, suddenly became dumb. Religion dumbed down the population. So it wasn't that you don't need questions. It was all of a sudden, a question is evil. So much has been written and so much has been said about the reaction to that kind of, of uh, dehumanizing of the human being. And there was the backlash against religion, anti-religious, and so on. And the argument was, 
You can't just tell me what to do and turn my brain off. So we're not going to go. I'm not going to go there tonight because that's that's well established. There's another thing that religion did, which today is becoming very burdensome and unhealthy. And that is religion made us dependent. The first thing you're taught in a religious education is that you are dependent. Let me tell you this uh, little-known fact. Bob Dylan wanted to quit smoking. And somebody recommended that he try the 12-step program, AA. He called up the AA uh, office, and they said, sure, you know, we'll help you out, but the first thing you have to do is admit that you're helpless and that you cannot help yourself. He said, oh, really? And he stopped smoking. <laughs> Don't tell me I can't do it. So the re religion, all religions, eventually became the message of dependence. You are helpless. You cannot handle life by yourself. You must depend on God. Only he can help you, and so on and so forth. Aside from being born in sin, which is a theological concept, but just the fact that your business will not succeed, your health will not stay, you, you cannot even survive uh, the traffic without help from heaven, so you're totally dependent. That means that we are needy. And if you want to get your needs met, you have to pray a lot, you have to obey God, stop asking questions, and, you know, the whole thing. So now we have three problems. First of all, we have to be obedient. Secondly, we have to dumb down. And thirdly, we have to recognize and feel how dependent we are and how helpless we are without God. All three concepts are true. We are dependent on God. And yes, you have to obey him. And when it comes to God, we're all dumb. It's all true. So what are we doing to fix it? It seems like religion keeps telling us of our problems, but doesn't get to a solution. As we get closer to Mashiach, the world becomes more godly, despite what you read in the, in the headlines. The world is becoming more godly. But that's not reported. It doesn't make headlines. One of the ways in which the world is becoming more godly, we are coming to the realization that it's not true that I have to obey God. It's not true that I must sacrifice my well-being, my desires, my appetite to his will. It's not true that I have to stop thinking and dumb down. And it's not even true that I am needy. This is something really godly, and it's a really new development, and it's universal. The development is, I did not ask to be born. 
The reason I didn't ask to be born is because I don't need to. If I needed to, I would ask. I'm not bashful. We don't ask to be born because we don't need to. Is that true? Why do we need to be born? Why do you need to be born? What were you missing before you were born? If I don't need to be born and I didn't ask to be born, how can I be needy? I came into this world not needing anything, including life. I don't need it. But somehow, as soon as I get here, I'm burdened with all sorts of needs. So what happens? You, you, you grow up. You are raised with the message. You must. You have to. I think the first message, you have to catch the school bus. <laughs> you have to get to the bus on time. Hurry up. Why do I have to catch the bus? Because you have to go to school. Why do I have to go to school? Aside from the fact I'm six years old, what do you mean I have to? I am totally unreliable. <laughs> How can I have obligations and responsibilities? Who would trust me? I have to get to the bus. So if a child six years old is a little brighter than the average kid and he said, I have to get to the bus? No, you got to get me to the bus. So don't, don't rush me. <laughs> it's your burden, not mine. I'm six. But the message doesn't stop. You have to. You have to get good grades. You have to pass all the tests. You have to do your homework. You have to graduate. You have to make it into the best college, and then you have to get a job. And by this time, or at this point, we're ready to quit. Don't want a job. <laughs> don't need a job. Whoa, whoa, if you don't have a job, how are you going to pay your bills? I don't want to pay bills. I didn't ask to be born and I have to pay the bill? <laughs> you invite me to lunch and then you give me the bill? Something doesn't add up here. So now you have to pay taxes. <laughs> and the mortgage. And your kids' tuition. So this is becoming really burdensome. And for some reason, it used to work it used to work. You told the kid you've got to make it in time for school. They, they got up in the middle of the night. Like back on the farm, you got to milk the cow. Well, if I got to, then I get up and I do it. Today, you tell a kid you got to milk a cow, and it's like, I have to milk a cow? What, did I create cows? I didn't even ask to be born. How could it be my job to milk cows? So it gets a little heavy and depressing. So we figure, okay, let's go for therapy. Because, you know, this is getting to be a little depressing and heavy. You go for therapy, and guess what you find out? You have needs you never even thought of. Forget the taxes. 
What are you going to do about the fact that your mother hates you? You got to fix that. What about the fact that you were uh, neglected when you were a baby? You got to go back and be rebirthed. Oh my God. I didn't ask to be born the first time. I have to do it again. Now you know you have problems you never even thought of. So you figure, okay, this is not working. Let me go to religion. Maybe God will comfort me. So you go to religion. You know what you find out? You think your needs are going to end when you die? No. You're going to need and need there too. So what are you going to do about that? At this point, people just quit. There's no hope. I don't know. I can't imagine. It worked for thousands of years. The message that you have to was compelling, convincing, and effective. You told somebody what they have to do, they did it. Today's kids don't understand why. Why would you do it? And it could be that politics plays a big role. You know, when you live under a czar, you get very used to the fact that you do what you're told. So if the czar says, you obey. So if your teacher says, you obey him too. If your parents say, you obey, you're into obedience, because so are your parents. Everybody obeys. Today, very different picture. If the president says, everybody runs to obey, that's today's biggest joke. So who do you obey? There is no obeying anymore in, in daily life. So when religion comes along and says, you must obey, it's like a foreign language. I don't even know what the word means. How do you do that? When the czar was in charge, when the emperor told you what to do, when the king ruled, you had to dumb down. What good will your knowledge do? You're stuck. Jewish life, you live in a ghetto, you live in a shtetl, where are you going to go? Your father was a butcher, you're going to be a butcher. Your father was a cobbler, you're going to be a cobbler. What, what do you need to know? Your life is narrow. It's predictable. What do you need to read books for? Become a, an apprentice and learn how to cook or how to bake or how to sew. Because that's what you're going to be doing. Where do you think you're going? So when religion dumbed you down, uh, yeah, it made sense. Everybody's dumbing me down, might as well. But the worst thing was the burden. The burden. You must. The result of this obedience, dumbing down, and neediness, the result was God got lost in the shuffle. We were obeying God, but it really didn't matter. We were obeying obedience. It didn't matter who told me to do it. You could even get confused. Uh, this commandment, is that from God or from the czar? And it didn't make any difference because you had to do it anyway. So who are you obeying? We pretty much forgot. We were also dumbed down, so you didn't ask too many questions. Who are we obeying? 
and the neediness? Nobody questioned it. Because the bottom line was, get to the bus, get to the school, get your report card, get your graduation, get into a good college, get a good job, make a lot of money so that you can pay the bills. And if not, you're going to die. Well, nobody wants to die. That was the motivation. Today, people are saying, don't, don't threaten me. I'm going to do all of that just to not die? That's ridiculous. I didn't ask to be born. Death is no longer a threat. And this is pretty shocking. And that's why when I was a Mrs. Reagan, who said to the, to the teenagers of America, just say no to drugs. And the teenagers were like, huh? Why? Well, it could kill you. Yeah, so? And the older generation didn't believe them. But they meant it. So what? Don't threaten me with death. It doesn't work anymore. That is a godly development, believe it or not. Because if we get to the truth, if we understand what God is all about and what the Torah is all about, it is not a religion. It is not obedience. It is not dumbing down. And you don't need it. You don't need it. This message that you are needy is unhealthy, it's nasty, it's cruel, and it's not true. And because it's not true, we find it so burdensome. Don't tell me what to do. Why are we so allergic all of a sudden? Why are we so allergic to rules and demands and expectations and responsibilities? It's because some sense in us recognizes that it is not true. It can't be. It can't be that I need anything. If I didn't ask to be born, what could I possibly need? So here's where psychology needs to upgrade its thinking. If you look into the soul of, of a human being, you will find deep, repressed, unrequited love, needs, drives. No. If you look into the soul of a human being, you will find that the, the person needs nothing. The real essence of you does not need anything. All needs are external. They're, they're imposed they're not yours. You don't need them. You're burdened with it, but it doesn't belong to you. Like, for example, I need to eat. Don't I? I mean, you got to eat. Yes, you got to eat, but don't call it my need. I need to stop eating. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't need to eat. I need to stop eating. Why can't I? Why can't I? Well, to live and to be healthy, you must eat. Whose weird idea was that? If you designed yourself, would you design yourself this way? 
Every three hours, drop what you're doing, time to eat. It's a ridiculous plan. Half your life, you have to sleep. Who designed us this way? Wasn't Tesla. So don't say, I need to eat. I don't need this. It's not a need. It's a handicap. And I need that like a hole in the head. So to say human beings need to eat, no, human beings need to be human, not half animal. So I was talking to this young woman who, who was suffering from anorexia. And she had had uh, a lot of therapy and, and it was under control. It was, she was not in danger anymore. But she says, I still find eating distasteful. I said, so do I. It's disgusting. And it's a handicap. And it's humiliating. The greatest brain surgeon in the world in the middle of a great operation has got to stop and eat some grass, a carrot, <laughs> lettuce, like a rabbit. Here's the brain surgeon of the century, and he has to eat the same things the rabbit's going to eat. In fact, the rabbit will eat it first if he doesn't grab it. So now you're in competition with a rabbit. So it's so humiliating. Anyway, I went on and on about what, what the Mishnah says about eating, eating too much, etc. She says, you're worse than me. And it cured her. <laughs> but find somebody worse than you. That's a good cure. I said, look, I don't know why God did this to us. It's so humiliating. But what are you going to do? You have no choice. You swallow your pride and you eat something. She was okay with that. Yes, you have to swallow your pride. So to say this is a definition of a human being, a human being needs to eat. This is not a definition of me. I don't need to eat. But I was designed with a dependence on food. I was designed with a dependence on sleep. I even have to breathe. In L.A., That's not a good plan. <laughs> it is so obvious, and yet it took us 5,000 years to come to this realization. I need, I don't even need to be born. The real essence of me needs nothing. In a sense, being born means you're not free to be you. Because you would not eat and you would not sleep and you would not breathe that stuff. But you have no choice. So let's take a look at what the Torah actually says. And once you see it, it is so obvious. It is so simple, so real. What are the first words of the Torah? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. 
You can close the book. That's enough knowledge. You know everything you need to know. Because what does that tell you? In the beginning, which means before there was you, God created the world. So now you need to pay the mortgage. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. If in the beginning God created heaven and earth, he has a need. Because he created the world with a purpose. So who's needy? The creation or the creator? Who was needy, the painter or the painting? How did the painting become responsible for hanging itself? <laughs> well, now you've got to hang somewhere. <laughs> you hang me. You're the creator. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? Is that not the truth? You remember begging to be born? Please, please, I want to pay mortgages. I want to breathe. No, we don't. At best, we would go for the nine months of pregnancy. That's a great time. No mortgages. No school buses. It's a wonderful time. And then the trauma of birth erases the memory of the good times. So here's the story. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of creation. Whose anniversary is it? Well, that's the day Adam and Eve was created and were created, and it's uh, the, the anniversary of humankind. Thank you very much, but we didn't ask to be born. So I'm not celebrating that anniversary. Like this guy who's suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. True story. They threw it out of court. Because the parents argued that they tried to ask him for his consent, but they couldn't find him. <laughs> It's the anniversary of creation for the Creator. Doesn't that make more sense? God says, I created the world in six days and I rested on the seventh. And that's why the seventh is special. But that's also why the day of creation is special. For Him. He's the Creator. He is the King of the world. He is the one with the need. And what does he need? Well, what could God need? He's eternal. He's infinite. He's perfect. He's all-powerful. What could he need? God hints at what he needs when he says, in the middle of creation, it is not good for man to be alone. Guess who he was talking about? Himself. By saying it is not good to be alone, he created that need in his creations. 
That's what we mean, that we are created in his image. He does not want to be alone, and he created us with this distaste or this um, non-contentment with aloneness. Um, you remember the song Piano Man? You do? You're old. <laughs> Who sang the song? There's a line in that song that is really very useful. It's brilliant. They're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Remember that line? They're sharing a drink called loneliness. If you're lonely, you go to a party. What do you do? You share your loneliness. You meet another person who's lonely, and you sit there, and you're lonely together. But then you go home. When you come home, you realize you're not just lonely. You're alone, and you can't share that. Not even at a party. Not even after a few drinks. You're alone. And for some reason, mysterious reason, we don't like it. Now, this, this is a, a really deep mystery to think about. Is it not good to be alone, or is it wonderful to be alone? We can't seem to make up our mind. God says it is not good to be alone. And yet you hear people everywhere saying, leave me alone. <laughs> so you want to be alone or you don't want to be alone? Is it good to be alone or not good? If you were perfect, if you were completely independent, wouldn't it be perfect to be alone? If I can take care of myself, what are you interfering with my life? Leave me alone. It seems like the only reason we need help, we need companionship, we need friendship, we need marriage, is because you know, we're not all powerful. I don't know how to do laundry, so I have to get married. And you don't know how to parallel park, so... You that's why we get married. Do my laundry, I'll park the car. But if I could parallel park and do laundry, why would I need you? It would be very good. Complete, total independence. Macho man. God said, no, it's not going to be good. Why? For no reason. Alone is not godly. Even if you're perfect. So God says, I'm perfect, but I'm alone. I don't like it. Why? No, you don't get it. I don't like it. Why not? You didn't hear me. It I don't like. Not because it makes some other problem for me. It is what I don't like. I don't like being just me. Why? What's going to happen? 
Nothing is going to happen. I don't like being alone. Why? Can't you park a car? In other words, it's the thing itself that is objectionable, not its consequence, not something else. It is not acceptable. So God, who is absolutely perfect, but alone, the only being, says this is not good. Why does he say it? So that we feel it too. And that's why we get married. You want me to sum it up? The reason you get married is for nothing. <laughs> if you're getting married for something, don't do it. Pay someone to park your car or do your laundry. It's cheaper. Don't get married for something. Get married for nothing because you're already perfect. What does this do for us? All of a sudden, we've got a new picture of everything. I need nothing. God, the creator, the perfect, infinite being, has a need. And if he has a need, it's pretty awesome. Because he doesn't know how to do things part way. Everything about him is infinite. If he has a need, it's infinite. It's eternal. It's him. And what is his need? To have us. So that he is not alone. This explains why we have free choice. Why did he give us free choice? Knowing we're going to mess up. Knowing we're going to turn against him with our free choice. Because if we don't have free choice, he's still alone. If you marry your clone, you're still alone. In, in order to not be alone, he had to create someone other than himself. Free choice. With the, uh, with the idea that this other will join and we will become one. That's what we mean when we say God is one. Hashem Echad. We don't mean there's only one God. That's his problem. What he wants is to become one, united. Become one through inclusion, not exclusion. He doesn't want to be the only one. He wants to be one with us. And because he created us in his image, we also don't want to be alone. We want to be joined, connected, merged with him so that we become one together, not by exclusion, but by inclusion. Doesn't it now make sense that he gave us a Torah? If he's the one who's needy, if he created the world out of a divine need, isn't he going to tell us what he needs? He has to. How else are we going to join him and become one with him? So he has to tell us. So when my grandfather sits me down and says, 
3,300 years ago, God came down at Mount Sinai and gave us a Torah. I said, oh, what took him so long? He waited 2,000 years to tell us what he needed. But fine, now we know. So what is the Torah? God's needs. God reveals himself. That's why it's called Revelation at Mount Sinai. God says, this is what I need. This is how we become one. I keep Shabbos. Keep it with me. Because if I'm sitting by my Shabbos table and you don't show up, it's not working. So do I need to keep Shabbos? We actually had a student at Beis Chana. When she left, she decided she was going to observe Shabbos. A couple of months later, she calls me with a problem. What is the problem? I'm keeping Shabbos, but I don't need this. I said, yeah, so what's the problem? She said, no, no, really, I don't need this. I said, I know you didn't create the world in the six days and rest on the seventh. Of course you don't need it. What made you think you needed it? And the same is true with every commandment. We don't need it. We don't need anything. Psychologically, this is so liberating. I am not needy. I don't have to obey. I don't have to dumb down. I don't have to anything. <laughs> I don't have to be born. Which leaves me free as a bird. Uh, more than a bird. A bird's got to get there early to catch the worm. I don't have to. It's very liberating. On the other hand, if I have no needs, what am I doing here? Very good question. If I don't need this, why do I have this? I didn't ask to be born, then why am I here? <laughs> so this guy says, well, my father, his fault. I'm born because he caused my birth, so let him pay my bills. But you know what the father says? Hey, wait, 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 wait. I didn't ask to be born either. So get it from my grand, <laughs> get it from my father. And his father says, hey, I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> Where does the buck stop? With God. God decided that I have to be here. He needs me to be here. He needs me to eat. I don't know why. So what am I left with? For myself, I need nothing. I'm free as a bird. And on the other hand, I have the opportunity to serve the creator of the whole world. What a great deal. No pressure and the greatest opportunity. When it comes Rosh Hashanah this year, we have to celebrate it differently than ever before. This is God's day. And he says, coronate me. Ask me to be your king. I want to be your king. But if you don't want me, it's not going to work. 
So we come to the synagogue on, on, on Rosh Hashanah and we blow the shofar, not because we need, but because we hear his need. And you know, to do for others is so much more enjoyable than to do for myself. Every mother knows this. Once the kids leave the house, what are you cooking for? All of a sudden, cooking becomes such a burden. Cook for somebody else. That makes sense. For yourself, it's a burden. I'll go out and buy some ready-made. But not for the kids. So to serve someone else is so much more enjoyable, so much more inspiring. And if it's God, it's so much more compelling. God is waiting for you. How long can you say no? So when it comes Yom Kippur, people say, you know, I've been saying no all year. I think I better show up. You can't ignore him completely. Can't ignore him completely. So when people say, oh, I don't need this. I don't need to be religious. Well, finally, you're catching on. <laughs> you don't need to be religious. God created the world with a vast eternal plan. You want to help out or not? Not today? How about tomorrow? Sometime? That's why it's called serving him. It's a literal expression. We serve him because he's the needy one. We have no needs. So what are you going to do? Sit around doing nothing? So when we hear his needs, we're like relieved. Oh, good, you need something because I don't know what I'm doing here. I got no needs. So when God calls Abraham, God calls Avraham, what does Avraham say? Hineni. <laughs> you know what Hineni means? I'm unemployed. Give me a job. Tell me you need something because I don't know what I'm doing here. I didn't ask for this. So God said, yeah, I asked for you. Oh, okay. What do you need? What can I do for you? I hear this cartoon when Trump got uh, uh, elected. There was a cartoon of him standing at the Western Wall, and he put a note into the crack. It said, hi, God, need anything? <laughs> That was making fun of his arrogance. But we all can say that. When you go to the Western Wall and you put a note into the wall, say to God, need me? I hope so. Because <laughs> otherwise, I don't belong here. So who is the needy one? Where does need really exist? Now think of it this way. God gave us the Ten Commandments, and 40 days later, we made a golden calf. Why? Because we felt the need. Because Moses disappeared. He didn't come back. He was supposed to come back on the 40th day, and, and the day passed, and he wasn't back. And we needed something. So you know what the sin of the golden calf was? We decided that we needed 
God had just finished telling us what he needs, and we turn around and said, well, uh, we need. That's idolatry. It's not the golden calf that is the idol. You're the idol. Only God needs, because he is the only creator. Creations don't need. Don't play God. When you start feeling needy, you're becoming God. It's not nice. And you're, you're going to regret it because being God is so difficult. <laughs> it's a full-time job. You become needy, you become weak. You become exhausted. You be, you're drained. You're not cut out to be needy. So when you think you're needy, you're making yourself crazy. And that's why finally, as we get closer to Moshiach, we're catching on. I'm cracking up because I need what I don't need. That'll make anybody crazy. And that's why the healthiest thing we can do is to look around and see who needs me. Somebody's got to need me because I have nothing else to do here. That's what Hineni means. Hineni means, please, give me a job. I'm totally available. I've got nothing else on my agenda. I'm here for you. That's called serving God. Religion has become self-serving. What will it do for you? Will it get you to heaven? Will it get you to the top of heaven, to the heaven of heavens? Front seat, box, a box seat. Don't, don't do this to yourself. When God came down to Mount Sinai, he did not burden us. He unburdened himself. He said, this is what I need from you. This is why I created you. Be mine. Join me. Let's become one. And that's why the description of the perfect time when the world will reach its perfection. What is the description? On that day, God will be one. What is he today? Alone. One means joined, united with someone. When we serve God properly, on that day, God will be one, which is all he wants. He just doesn't want to be the only. He wants to be the one. And that's what our marriage should become. When you get married, you're basically saying, I have nothing else to do. Right? <laughs> you get married when you have nothing else to do. You meet somebody who also has nothing else to do. That's a match made in heaven. You're both perfect and you just don't like being alone. So you get married and you become one. That's it, people. That is the whole divine truth. So come. Come on, Rosh Hashanah. You don't need it? Perfect. That's why you should come. Because he needs you far more than you need him. And that's the truth. So it's not 
obedience that he wants? He wants oneness. It's not dumbing down that he wants. He wants to be known, understood, and cared for. So once he tells us what he needs, he's expecting us to be sympathetic, to be willing, to even be excited about joining him in his need. What could be greater? So imagine if tomorrow everybody in the world wakes up and says, what am I doing here? I don't need this. That would be so good. That would be the beginning of perfection. Not the end of history, the beginning of everything. Until now, we've just been practicing, warming up, trying to figure ourselves out. Not very useful. Now, we can become very useful because I don't need this. So if I can be useful to you, that is the biggest blessing for me. You're doing me a favor by needing me. We would rather be needed than needy. That's not dumb. That's sensible. It's much better to be needed than to be needy. So when we come into Rosh Hashanah this year, don't come with a bunch of needs. Don't come begging God. Come to God with joy and say, I, we finally grew up. We don't need anything. Can we do anything for you? Like somebody asked a rabbi, isn't there one thing that I can do for God that is really meaningful? And if he was a good rabbi, you know, like a Chabad rabbi, he would say, why only one thing? Just happens to be, there are 613 things you can do for him that is really meaningful to him and really satisfies the desire which made him create the world. Big smorgasbord. 613. Take your pick. But just don't ignore him. He's the one who has the need. You are needed. It's a blessing. That is not religion. That's just cooperation. God went out of his way because of his need to have you join him. Well, one of these days, join him. What are you waiting for? You have something else to do? No. That's why serving God is a joy. Ivdu es Hashem b'simcha is not another demand. Oh, not only must you serve him, you must do it with a smile. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, if you're busy serving him, you have reason to smile. If you're busy taking care of your needs, you're justified in being depressed. So, make a choice. You want to serve him with a smile? Or take care of your needs on Zoloft? <laughs> <laughs>
not much of a choice. So we should have a really, really good Rosh Hashanah, an anniversary that is meaningful, that is life-changing, that is liberating, and that is so meaningful to be needed is the greatest feeling in the world. And you're needed. Rejoice. A very good year, a happy new year, a sweet new year, a year of real pleasure, real pleasure, not burdens. And the pleasure is, God needs me, I'm here. Not a bad idea, huh? Any questions? Anyone need to ask a question? Yeah. So what we need to do <laughs> is wish each other a good, sweet year. And the meaning of that is God will give you a good year. You make it sweet. He'll do his part. And that's good. The sweet part comes from us. Yes. I can't either. I've got a really bad memory, and 613 is just too much to remember. Never mind, do. Do the one that you can do. He will be so pleased. He will give you the strength to do another one. He knows who he's dealing with. <laughs> he knows we are not infinite. He knows we are not angels. All he wants is cooperation. So if you do one mitzvah, you're in. You're, you're among the good guys. If you can do two, we'll do two. <laughs>